Hi guys, welcome back to Life of Education's podcast. Um, it's myself and Caroline, and we've got Matt Cottrell here with us. Say hi, Matt. Morning. Um, Matt is doing a presentation on general adaptation syndrome for us, which is which talks about stress and cumulative stress and how your body's only got so much resources to be able to recover from each stress. Um, so we wanted to bring him on to delve into some of the, because there's a quite a lot of science studies in your talk, um, that when you're looking at the graph, it's quite hard to sort of, to dig out. So we want to get you in and have a chat and sort of, if you can remember, what was the, the do you want to just introduce your talk yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so it's, yeah, it's a three part sort of series, I guess. And it's basically looking at, well, first and foremost, like what stress is and essentially how any type of stress, whether it's like the physical, the chemical, the emotional, um, or environmental, can impact the body. And if the magnitude is large enough, so if the stress is large enough, then essentially that's going to cause some sort of adaptive effect in the body. Well, then what constitutes stress? Well, anything. Mm-hmm. So like we're sitting here now, so the air conditioning's on, so it's stressing your system. And mm-hmm. light is shining into your eye and that's stressing your system. And now you're engaging with us as well. And so every little sort of micro expression on my face is causing some sort of physiological effect in you and so on and so forth. So you're constantly under stress. Right? And that's kind of where, I guess, in today's kind of modern world, that term kind of gets overused. It means everything and it means nothing at the same time now. Because what people associate with stress is... I guess largely like work-based stuff so they feel like I'm stressed at work or I'm stressed out and they assume that it's just this bad thing that's happening to them that they need to alleviate whereas the whole reason you evolved as a human being is because of stress because the environment taxed you in such a way right from the beginnings when you were some single-celled organism all the way up to now it taxed you in such a way that you then had to adapt or you ended up dying and so on and so forth, the whole process of evolution. So certain traits would get kind of wiped out. Some would be uh, this is advantageous going to the environment. Back to Darwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole thing. So survival of the fittest. Um, but what's kind of come about in more recent times is the whole idea of epigenetics and things like that, where certain things will actually cause an adaptation in themselves. Can you explain to everyone what epigenetics is? Not in huge detail, because <laughs> that's just way beyond my <laughs> realm of expertise. But essentially, the your kind of your ability to adapt to the environment so for instance let's say uh so we all go to the gym and we all train to such an extent that uh, we develop muscles and we develop strength now the idea is at least as far as like exercise say goes is that that will cause some fundamental change in our dna and our cells and we'll switch some genes on some genes might be turned off and so our grandkids will then benefit from that and so uh this will then kind of propagate over the course of sort of generations that's a very, very simple explanation. Okay. <laughs> and I probably butchered it completely. So, yeah, if anybody's listening who's an actual epigeneticist, by all means, correct me. Beware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the talk's basically getting into that. So the first part is, okay, let's just kind of really pin down what stress means. Um, well, so this is maybe let's go back to that because when I watched your talk, what was really interesting is I associated it as well with like work stress or stress on the road when you're driving. And I didn't actually realize that there's a lot of scientific studies to the word stress and how that came about. So maybe you can explain that to everyone. Yeah, sure. So it's one of those words that we use so often now that you would think that it's been around forever, but 
it was basically coined by a doc a guy called dr hans Selye, who's a canadian uh endocrinologist i think he was he uh, took a bunch of rats and then basically he was trying to determine what would happen under different amounts of innocuous agents so in this case i can't remember what poison he used but it was like arsenic or something and he took the first group of rats and he uh injected them and he found but actually let me back up let me explain so first off so okay we're sitting in this room right now okay and like i said at the very start the air conditioning the lights kind of ourselves we're all sort of everything's your body's under stress okay but the magnitude is such that your body can kind of deal with it okay Mm, so it's small minute amount of stress yeah it's not big enough to cause any sort of significant reaction and like this kind of bandwidth is what we call homeostasis okay Mm. Now, let's say uh, a tiger was to jump through the window. Your body's basically goes like, okay, something's gone on. Uh, I'm going to my pants. I need to either fight or run away, uh, whatever else. And so then you get this kind of dramatic, uh, what we call alarm reaction, where you get this sort of immediate um, increase in heart rate, increase in kind of perspiration, uh, constriction of your bladder, sudden suppression of your immune system, basically everything to engage you. And stress hormones as well. Yeah, yeah, so cortisol, and adrenaline. adrenaline, noradrenaline, the whole thing, uh, to prepare you to, to fight or run away. Okay. Um, so that would be, sorry to interrupt you, the um, sympathetic nervous system yes, response yeah. would be to prepare you to fight, f- uh, freeze, or... Run. Flee. <laughs> yeah, flee. Yeah, the, uh, the three Fs. Yeah, so you get this massive sympathetic drive. And then you're either, we're either going to run away, we're either going to fight it and hopefully win. And so then when the stress is kind of abated, we then get this big kind of parasympathetic uh, input. So basically the rest and digest, we're going to mm. return back to baseline. Or well, the body will try and bring us back to baseline. So essentially these hormones are there to give people say power or to give people speed or to give people yes so adrenaline like when you have a cup of coffee you know it's going to increase your adrenaline so now you're going to be like wired like your vision's going to get a bit better your reflexes will get a bit better you'll get stronger you'll get faster you know you'll mobilize everything that you need to to move and to move quickly and powerfully um and then sometimes what you see is like this kind of little dip where you go into this sort of fatigue and then your body will more or less return back to baseline okay so what he found was that if you inject mice with uh, a significant dose to cause that initial alarm reaction, so that first bit, so the alarm reaction, you have this resistance phase and then back to homeostasis. When he injected them with enough to cause that, he found that he would, they would go into this big alarm reaction. They'd then get the sympathetic drive. But then, sure enough, it would return kind of back to baseline fairly quickly. So there was no adaptation from the body. Everything stayed the same from before pre-injection to post-injection. And when you say adaptation, you mean there was no learning? No long-lasting effect from the poison. So what's happening in the alarm phase? Like what is is in the immediate aftermath? So that's that's the sympathetic drive. So that's the increase in heart rate. So this is between, let's call it sort of uh, anywhere from six to, I think it's up to like 48 hours he found that this alarm reaction could happen. So if you imagine you have like, uh, let's say... uh, a tiger jumped through the window, as I say. We have that initial spike and it fires up. Now, let's say you're particularly impervious to stress, like you've seen a few tigers jump through a few windows. Your alarm reaction won't last that long. You'll be okay. But if you're particularly sensitive, like that's never happened before, then you might be in that kind of sympathetic sort of drive for anywhere up to like 48 hours potentially. Mm-hmm. Do you know? 
Like it's going to sort of traumatize you to a certain extent before everything just returns back to baseline again. So the lesson here is from the first experiment that Hans conducted? Well, first off, yeah. So more or less that... I think the first one was that they just returned and there was no adaptation. Yeah, so there's nothing that's essentially happened. Okay. So then what he found with the second group of mice was that, okay, I'm going to give them this alarm dose, this first injection, but then I'm going to follow it up with smaller doses of this poison. All right. And again, imagine, like, like we're talking about poison here, but he kind of makes the point that this could be anything. This could be muscular exercise. This could be excessive heat stress, cold stress, anything, right? So as you mentioned before, it could be physical, chemical, yeah, or emotional like. stress. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of wipe away the idea of uh, let's, a toxic agent. It's just a stimulus, okay? Mm-hmm. So the stimulus, uh, a frightening stimulus or a significant stimulus, like let's say you go and do a heavy squat session in the gym, uh, it might not be enough to trigger ag- adaptation, despite the fact that it's increased all your sympathetic drive and you've gone through this alarm stage, okay? Now, you followed it with, like, repetitive smaller stimuli. And this is in the second experiment, or the yeah. second control group of rats. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. well, the second group of rats. They obviously yeah. had a control who did nothing, okay? Um, and then what he found was that with the repetitive doses, they would then kind of pass this, what he called this adaptation threshold. So the stimuli was enough for a significant change to have to take place for the body to be able to deal with the stressor. All right, and so to put this in, the, to give you an example, this is like the development of muscle or like lean muscle tissue. Mm. So you've had a big heavy weight training session. It's not enough to do anything. Your body returns to normal. If I follow it up with then further weight training sessions, okay, now there's a stimulus. Now there's an adaptation, okay? Mm. Um, so the lesson here was basically that in order for a stimulus to cause adaptation, it has to be significant enough to challenge the body's kind and of ongoing. Uh, not necessarily, because you could have, like, again, with the case of the tiger, say, it could fundamentally traumatize you. Uh, and so you're not going to adapt to it. You're just going to get into exhaustion. And so this is the, the next kind of group of mice. Um, if we then continually give them these doses of stimuli without sufficient rest, then what you see and what you see in the lecture is this kind of graph that follows this alarm reaction. So you're kind of getting this massive sympathetic drive. You're basically getting pushed into this kind of heightened state or what we would call this sort of uh, depression of your body's uh, immune system, so on and so forth. You're then kind of going up into the positive where adaptation's taken place. So you're essentially doing better than what you were before. And then if you keep repeating the doses without sufficient rest, you then tank and you go into what's called kind of the exhaustion phase. And this is relevant to what you guys do, like to exercise because? Uh, Well, because you basically... If you want to talk about it in a training context, there's kind of two uh, laws to I training. So A is the first lesson from this is that, okay, uh, the training stimuli has to be sufficient enough to challenge the body's adaptive resources. So it has to challenge you in some way to take you away, push you out of homeostasis. And then the second law really is uh, that training is only really effective so long as it doesn't surpass your body's capacity to recover from it. Mm. Okay, so it has to be in this kind of Goldilocks zone. Um, which is kind of further on into the lecture, but at this kind of at this stage, he's looking at these mice and he's finding, okay, if I don't let up and if I continually give them these doses of stimuli ongoing, then they tank. And basically he brought them to the point of death where every single sort of rat in that group died. Um, and then what he did was he then experimented. So he's kind of learned a couple of lessons. Is that okay, it needs to be sufficient enough to challenge the body's adaptive resources, but also if I keep on with the stimulus without recovery, 
they're going to die. So then he thought, okay, there's this adaptation energy and it's like a finite resource. So I can uh, use enough of it to adapt, but if I don't let up, I run out of this resource and then I tank and fatigue, okay? So then he thought, okay, well, what if I give them two different types of stress? So he used two different types of uh, toxins, but in our game, we would think of it like, well, let's say I give them like a really stressful work environment and then let's take them into the gym. So they got this double whammy of stress, stress from the, the work, stress from the gym itself, okay, the exercise. And what he found was that when you give somebody an initial dose of something, so you undergo an initial stressor, you'll go through the same thing, the alarm reaction, this kind of potential uh, kind of resistance from the body, okay, so this uh, parasympathetic drive. But then if you immediately add another dose in, the body's ability to adapt to the second stressor has been negated. All right? So you've kind of used up some of your adaptive uh, energy, if you like, on the first stressor. So there's less to be used for the second. Mm. I think that's really important in this day and age because people are really assaulted with so many different forms of stress, like emails and then work and then uh, they go home and they may have kids and like lots of other stresses that are happening in their life and then you've got food um, and toxins and lack of sleep so there's a lot of things happening yeah completely but the, the problem is that people aren't even aware of that to the extent that they don't even believe it's happening i mean i've had clients um, who have said that they, they've come to me with some sort of injury and they've said that they they don't really believe that the stress of work or what they eat can impact their injury and it's like you know there's there's this complete disconnection to what you are as a human being. Mm. Like I imagine if you were back in like the Stone Age time, you would be extremely aware of the impact the environment was having around you because it would change the types of food that you could eat. Mm. It would change the quality of the foods that you could eat. I mean, particularly people in Northern Europe, I mean, we still feel the changes in weather. Like if you're in the UK and summer suddenly hits for two weeks, like everybody's happy. Like you Mm. feel it. There's like a palpable sense of like relief and everybody's in a good mood. And then sure enough, the second that winter hits again, people are depressed. And they've only just sort of caught onto it. They call it like seasonal affective disorder, as if it's mm. this new thing that's suddenly come about. But it's like, that, that's always been the case, you know? Look at people who uh, live in the, uh, by the Arctic, where they go through periods of uh, months winter, and months like of months winter. of just dark, mm. and then vice versa, where they're overexposed to sunlight and they can't sleep anymore. Like, that really messes you up. And you even see it in some of the uh, psychology literature, like depression and things, that if you... If you don't, if you're depressed or if you're anxious and you mess up what we call your circadian rhythm, so your body clock, that just makes things worse. And like that's one of the bits of advice that kind of often gets given. Like make sure you wake up at the same time every day because your mm-hmm. body's in this rhythm and you don't want to disrupt it because it's important. So you would, you would be, you know, intimately aware of the effects of the world around you and how it affects you. Whereas now we, we build walls around ourselves. You know, we have a rectangle that we sit in for work and a rectangle that we sit mm-hmm. in at home. And uh, AC, artificial environments yeah. that keep everything very... Exactly. So you're even. just not, you're not used to it. And that's why it's suddenly this huge revelation when you get guys like... Uh, you're familiar with like Wim Hof, like the Iceman dude? Yeah. You know, where suddenly yep. he comes around and he starts saying, no, I can, I can control my immune system. Like, I use the cold to do it. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, of course. But it's for some reason, it's this kind of like, wow, no, this is crazy dude who's... Uh, nuts and then sure enough when people test it and people sort of put them in a lab and they see it, it's like yeah his immune system does increase it is stronger 
for having been in the cold. And it's like, yeah, because he's gone through this adaptive process, the same that we do in the gym, the same that we're now figuring out in the saunas and things like that. Like, you can pretty much use any stressor to your advantage to gain some sort of adaptation. Mm. And what's more is you can use it to enhance the effects of other stresses. So you can use heat and cold to boost your performance in the gym. You can use it to help you recover. There's even some literature to say that you can use it as a substitute for exercise. So you can get same adaptations from sitting in a sauna three times per week at like 71 degrees Fahrenheit. And you'll see changes in muscle tissue uh, akin to what you would experience if you did like weight training, mm. you know? And so then, but it's... Careful there, you're going to start a new fad. Everyone's going to be sitting in saunas for well, hours there, there and not is, exercising. Right? So it's, uh, was it on Tim Ferriss' podcast? What's her name? Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Yeah. Is that what it is? So she's now become hugely popular for the, the sauna proteins, for yeah. protocol. But so the heat shock proteins, uh, this common adaptive cellular sort of thing that happens in all manner of stress. Like people with PTSD have a proliferation of heat shock proteins. For those who don't, they're basically like a, when you significantly stress a tissue, these proteins will sort of form or mobilize called heat shock proteins. The reason they're called heat shock is because they were found when uh, people started messing around with thermotolerance stuff, so heat kind of stress. But you find heat shock proteins uh, in response to exercise. If somebody has a heart attack, you'll see this proliferation of heat shock proteins in their myocardium. In cold stresses, heat shock proteins, even when you're psychologically taxed, you'll see uh, a proliferation of heat shock proteins. So, and that's the point that Hans Selye was trying to make, is that all of these stresses impact the body in the same general way. That's why it's called general adaptation syndrome. And there's this, basically what that means is that there's this common theme through all stresses. So the specific stuff kind of happens, and that's what we get into in the second parts like how do we use exercise itself as a stressor to cause a specific adaptation but it's all kind of predicated on and built upon these general adaptive themes so these general cellular changes i can't even believe like what was uh, what was i originally talking about <laughs> you're, you're on the so second I, you're on the group the, two of the mice I yeah, so you, two, yeah, yeah. You just finished the second group. I think we were on three where now you're giving them different stimulation. So you've got two yeah, noxious yeah, substances. Yeah. Was, yeah. There's one and then there's another. Is that two or is that three? Yeah, so yeah, so th the body has uh, an adaptive energy, if you like, an adaptive currency. That when it gets used up, okay, now you're going to go into exhaustion. So the point is you have to manage all of the stresses. And this is uh, one of my sort of, strength and conditioning heroes uh, Buddy Morris uh, he says that you shouldn't even think of yourself as like a, a coach or a personal trainer you're just a stress manager that's all you're doing and uh, we're trying to directly use stress through the means of exercise and potentially heat and cold or whatever else but we're then our job is to manage the other stresses or at least try as hard as we can to manage the other stresses because otherwise you won't adapt in the gym. Like you won't... Uh, so just give me an example of what that might look like, adapting other stresses. Uh, well, managing other stresses. So for instance, mm. uh, let's say we have a client come to the gym and he's hungover, okay? And he's had a really shit time at work for the week. He's not going to be the same person walking into the gym as when he's completely fresh and he's completely okay and he's, he's pumped, okay? So now the exercises that we're going to do and the loading that we're going to uh, put on him um, it's going to have to change. It's going to have to fluctuate. And it will continually have to fluctuate throughout the course of a training program in response to all the things that he's experiencing outside of the gym. Because we can't control it, right? I mean, 
depending on who you're dealing with, you can either have somebody who's extremely sensitive and is extremely um, kind of malleable and they're very sort of uh, prone to mood swings and they're always at the mercy of things that are happening. In which case, you know, you can have a training program set out, but you're going to have to change that thing all the time, you know. Whereas some people, you, you know, they get on with it and they're fine, but the point is, is that you're uh, tailoring the program to them. And, like, and that's a very sort of buzzword, cliche thing for a personal trainer to say, was tailor-made programs. It was like, yeah, but is it really? Because it's, it's one thing to do it like based on, okay, well, you have a dodgy back. You have a, I don't know. You're, you haven't trained that often, you know, that experience. But it's another thing entirely when you start bringing all of their lifestyle factors into it. Mm. And that's a real sort of bugbear I have with the fitness industry is that people say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's about exercise and it's about nutrition and it's about lifestyle as if these things were separate from themselves rather than interconnected as a whole and in the fourth group of rats he basically did what uh, Mithridates did back a few centuries ago where he just decided to take or give the rats a small dose of stimuli but then give them increasingly larger doses as they went on and basically what he found was that you could completely bypass the whole alarm reaction kind of big heavy resistance uh, sort of sympathetic parasympathetic uh, engagement and you could just steadily increase the adaptive response of the rats. So effectively, you could adapt without the uh, substantial sort of stress taking place, so without the damage, essentially. And then after that, he uh, kind of concluded all his research. And then a couple of decades later, back in the 70s, I think it was, a group of Russian scientists led by, I think, his Professor Garkavi decided to kind of bring it all together um, and then try a, a bunch of different doses and just see if they could kind of, uh, I suppose, regulate how quickly and how extensively you can make an organism adapt. And so they went about going through the exact same experiments, but they just gave varying doses and they played around with it. And basically what she found was, or what they found was that you could kind of coax adaptation in like a in a slow sort of way so across time let's say uh, I don't know, over the course of days rather than sort of immediately um, then if you added a little bit more stress you could then obviously make that happen a bit quicker but with a bit more of an uh, alarm reaction so a bit more of a kind of a sympathetic response and then you could go all the way up to what Hans Selye found where you could just blast somebody with a load of stimuli you get adaptation happening a lot quicker but then you risk them then tanking and going into this fatigue and so she then put together all of this and she called them, so the smallest type of uh, adaptive response, a training reaction to something. Then the next one up, what she would call like an adaptive reaction, followed by then what we'd say the stress responses or the stress reaction, which is kind of like the big bad one, like a significant uh, sympathetic response followed by a significant parasympathetic response. But then you're adapting very quickly, but then you have the risk of, tanking and this is where the term stress was coined or well, was no, that I, much like Hans Selye basically termed okay. coined, like stress so the concluding remarks of his research were all things seem to respond in the same general way to diverse innocuous agents which again is anything of the chemical the physical the environmental and he just termed that stress okay in terms of like stresses and things like that so that's where we get the word from um, and then yeah the Russian scientists just kind of reinforced that uh, basically their sort of main finding was that we can play around with different types of stress and with different magnitudes of stress to get different adaptive responses from the body at different times. 
Um, and so that's then, so you imagine like here we are sort of today and when people are feeling kind of anxious, when they're potentially depressed, where they're kind of experiencing excessive fatigue, essentially they're going into what we would call this sort of stress reaction. So they're dealing with too many stresses at one time and it's kind of producing this uh, sort of reaction. And it, the, the problem is it becomes normal. I think we'll get used to it. Would that not be akin to the fourth experiment by the Russians where there's lots of di- different stimulation, all different uh, types at different doses? Would yeah, that for sure. be akin to what's happening today with most people? I think, th- I think one thing <laughs> you need to sort of explain is the supercompensation, like the point at which you should incur stress again in an ideal world. Right. Okay, well, yeah, so there's this, uh, there's a phenomena in training like we use it particularly in exercise called the supercompensation effect and it usually gets misrepresented like if you were to google in now like google images and go supercompensation they would show you that general adaptation syndrome graph and they would put it as uh that the supercompensation effect was just the regular adaptation which is not like in a in a training program when we're just let's say uh so in a training program, we have what we call periodization, where you basically organize blocks of training into different physical qualities. Okay, So you might say that, uh, okay, we're going to work on strength this month over a four-week period. And so in week one, you might start off nice and light. Week two, you would then progressively get heavier, kind of in the same way that Hans Elliot did with the, 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 uh, with the toxins, with the mice. And then in the third week, maybe you'd completely beast somebody. Like This would be like the hardest part of the, the training. And then week four, you would allow recovery to happen. And so what you see is this kind of little step and then a drop and then a step and then a drop in terms of the load. That normal adaptive response is what is that big kind of sloping curve in the uh, general adaptation syndrome graph. Okay, That's just like the normal day-to-day bodily adaptation that you would expect from a training program. And that gets misrepresented. That gets called supercompensation. But supercompensation is when you go... You try to stress the body in such a way that you expect an extraordinary level of adaptation to happen at a particular time. So, Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, yeah. So we, we use it in like the Olympic Games, for instance, or prior to like a really... I mean, you don't tend to see it in seasonable, in seasonal sports because there's just they're already playing every week and it's, it's tough to beast somebody when they're already tired and they're already stressed out because we know that if you add too much stress, like, hey, you're going to tank, you're not going to adapt. But when you're working with Olympic sports, that's slightly different because you only have one or two times per year where you really want to be at your best. It might be for the qualifiers for an Olympic Games. It might be in the World Championships. Um, and then obviously the big one is the Olympic Games itself. So let's say we're in the run-up to uh, Tokyo in a few years' time and we're about, let's say, like a month prior to the Games. What a lot of coaches will do is they'll go through a period of what we call overreaching where we're going to purposefully put you in a state of overtraining or close to it. Like we're mm-hmm. going to really push you to the point of failure. Um, and so what you do is you'll you beast them. Like you'll, you'll put them through like a week or two weeks where you're just going to nail them like with high this volume. This is very similar to what boxers do when yeah, they like go to camp. boxing. Yeah, yeah, they go to camps. Yes, yeah, so, well, so training yeah. camp is where you would normally do this. Yeah. And the reason you go and do it at training camp is because the coaches are watching you like all the time. So when you leave the gym, you are then going to go and you're going to go see the physiologist or the nutritionist and they're going to have a shake ready for you. And like your air conditioning will be set at a certain temperature. You have the right pillows. Like 
like you get looked mm. after because it's such a strenuous thing that they can't have you go off and go to the bar or have a fight with your girlfriend like you're isolated from the world and that's why training camps are so tough because okay we're purposely going to beat you up and we're going to see what happens and if you do it right you then go into what we call a taper phase which normally the research would suggest that like a two-week taper period was probably optimal um, in which case we're going to completely reduce the volume and when we say volume we literally mean like just sets and reps and miles and so on so we're going to reduce all of that but reducing, we're gonna, reducing the stress yeah reduce the stress but yeah. you're going to keep the intensity high so you're still going to lift heavy and you're still going to run fast or you're still going to row fast or whatever else and if you get it right what you'll see is this dramatic uh, increase in performance again above what you would normally expect from a typical training program mm. Now, when you time it right and you get like if so. This seems like there, there needs to, particularly when you're working with Olympic athletes, it needs to be so precise because you go a little bit too far and you can injure them and yeah, 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 that's yeah. it, and, they're and, out. Or overtraining. And like yeah. overtraining is like a word that get, just gets abused because like, I'm overtrained. It's like, no, no, like overtraining is like a clinically studied thing. It's like a, I wouldn't say a disease, but it's like a serious condition. Um, and they're, they're, t- they're dancing along the line of pushing you into overtraining. Yeah, I've heard where, I, I don't know if this is similar, it's probably not, but where you have people that are um, overtraining and they have stress fractures because they're also not eating properly or other things like that, that would be classified as overtraining uh, too? Well, not necessarily, no. Like okay. you can, I have a client with stress fractures in her tibia because she just runs too much and she's mm-hmm. not prepared for it. That's like an, a symptom of excessive repetitive stress like uh, excessive fatigue overtraining is uh, so in academia it's called unexplained underperformance syndrome like that's what it's classed as because people don't know why it happens and the symptoms of it can be like varied you can get people going into almost like clinical depression like anxiety goes through the roof they're just like moody they're angry Uh, some people just don't eat and the reason they call it that is because your performance goes down uh, to such an extent that it's unexplainable. Like there's, there's no, there's not often a reasonable cause. Um, hence the name unexplained underperformance syndrome. Uh, and the, the body starts doing weird things. Like you start seeing uh, weird changes in your physiology. Uh, something called like the lactate paradox, where despite the fact that you're seemingly still as fit and still as sort of strong, your lactate's actually dropping where it should be going higher for intensive efforts Did that makes sense so if you were to do loads of successive sprints your lactate content in your blood would go high mm-hmm. whereas for some reason I, I seem to remember it's been a while since I've looked at the literature but if you uh, overtrain, one of the symptoms could be that you're going through these intense bouts but the lactate isn't rising and I'm not entirely sure why or if people know why that's happening but so you start getting all these weird things but you can come out of it within like a week or a month or a year and some people never come out of it and their career is over. But so it's a huge risk and that's why it's only done in training camps and that's why you're only overreaching somebody of an appropriate age. Um, I had planned to do it with uh, these sprint kayakers I used to train. So they were in the run-up to the World Junior Championships and my mentor at the time kind of smacked me around the back of the head. He's like, no, like, no, like you wouldn't do that for this type of athlete. So like 18, it's like, mm. there's no need to do it. So the conditions under which you would do it, like you got to be precise and you got to be careful because it can ruin people. Mm. Uh, but so if you do it right. Especially if it's their career. Yeah, of course. Mm. You know, particularly if it's their Olympic career. 
and it's not like they can just okay well I'll just respond in the next game it's mm. like no like now you're out the squad but if you get it right you get this dramatic increase in performance and if you time it right hopefully that dramatic increase is in line with your Olympic Games or your world championships uh, and the reason why they go through that is because well after the Olympic Games hopefully you've won and we don't really care if you're into fatigue after that because now you've got a month off like now you just recover <laughs> so we don't really care if you get hurt we don't really care if uh, your immune system tanks or you're on tour for your country <laughs> yeah. yeah whatever like it's like you're done okay now take a month off and recover and do whatever mm-hmm. you need to do and uh, you know for some athletes like as long as they get a medal who cares so that's super compensation it's not just the day-to-day adaptive response from a training program which it gets misrepresented as um so just to link back then to what you asked a few minutes ago you can you should ideally wait until the body's recovered from the given stress before you apply that same stress on that same system so that you are stressing the system that has improved at its highest point on the curve so like you were saying you have your alarm phase and then as you adapt you get stronger or you get fitter and then at that point on the graph, you should train again. So you drop down a little bit, but you also bounce back and you go higher. Yeah. So you go up and you go up and you go up. But from what you said, if you continuously apply stresses, all different types of stresses, and you get it on the graph at the downward phase, you're going to go down and you're going to go down and you're going to go down. Hmm. Hence, people come in feeling like they've got this overtraining syndrome, but they're they're just overstressed. They're tired. They haven't slept. They, they come into the gym to try and get a stress release, but they're coming in and they're pushing themselves to the brink of what they feel they can physically do, and then their nervous system deep down is suffering even more. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're constantly in a state of uh, kind of sympathetic response. This. Like can the- we – sorry to interrupt you. Can we go back to this? Because this is uh, obviously terms that are used a lot uh, so sympathetic and parasympathetic, but maybe for people who don't exactly know what they are, can you explain them? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so again, we're sitting here. A tiger jumps through the window. Okay, we're like, oh, f- in Dubai. In Dubai. <laughs> okay. Um, it could happen. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Rich people yeah, could let, say, could yeah, let the tiger yeah. out of their yeah, big villa and it could end up chilling out on the street. <laughs> Uh, I think I actually saw that in a newspaper ages and ages sure. ago. Yeah, with, there was a photo um, and there was a tiger sitting in someone's car, like yeah, only in Dubai. That. There's a tiger on the road in some video online. You'll see yeah. a tiger falls out the back of a car and just runs through traffic. Yeah, anyway. so in that case, then you're in your car and you're like, okay, there's a tiger. So it can tiger happen in Dubai. You'll, you'll feel it. There's a palpable sense. And again, like, again, we, we always use the example of things like tigers and stuff because that's just, you know, that's what our ancestors probably underwent. But your boss walks through and you've not done your job and they're about to give you a you get the same sense of feeling your mouth goes a bit dry you start getting a bit anxious um adrenaline goes up you start sweating this is like your sympathetic nervous system okay so it's regulated by what we call the hpa axis which is your hypothalamus so kind of the climate control center in your brain then down to your pituitary uh, gland and then into your adrenal gland so and again if you just Google image HPA axis and you'll kind of see what let's, where it is in the body. But let's go back and slow down on that one. Can you explain that in more detail? Well, so the HPA axis. Yeah. Well, so your hypothalamus in the brain, the pituitary mm-hmm. axis as well, and then your adrenal glands. Okay. So they work in concert to basically stimulate the body to produce uh, what you need to survive in that sort of stressful situation. So cortisol, adrenaline, and so on and so forth. 
and things like cortisol will help mobilize kind of glucose from the muscle so the muscle now has energy um, it'll help increase uh, your heart rate obviously the re um, in response to adrenaline um, your brain becomes more wired your uh, your perception of effort and pain will reduce so you'll be able to kind of do stuff that would ordinarily really hurt like say punch somebody in the face or, or run really fast and basically have it not be as taxing or as strenuous as it would be ordinarily if you weren't being chased by a tiger or whatever else so it's, it's there to provide a purpose it's there to get you out of kind of crazy situations and, and so on and so forth and then opposed to that is what we call the parasympathetic system which is kind of its opposite so heart rate decreases saliva then starts flowing in your mouth you can then digest food um and this is what we call like the rest and digest kind of part of the nervous system right so and reproduce and reproduce um so you ha you have the two in balance to basically help you regulate kind of your response to the world around you and in an ideal world again like you imagine let's say uh, like a zebra or just some other animal when they're in danger, they run and they flee and then they go back to eating grass and they're completely chilled again. And so they're in this kind of what you would call, uh, I suppose, parasympathetic dominance. Because obviously they're not getting chased all day. They spend most of the day eating and grazing and whatever else. And they're only really strenuously active if they are having to fight or run away. Um, so the body's in like some sort of balance, right? And all these adaptive effects can kind of take place and there's, uh, there's a management of stress. Whereas the problem that we have with human beings and I suspect uh, that it, a lot of it's just to do with like language and what guys like Noam Chomsky called uh, the language of thought. The fact that if we get chased by a tiger, we don't just stop thinking about it and go back to eating. We stress about it for the rest of the day. And again, going back to our guys in an office, if his boss comes in and chews him out, he's not just going to go back to doing his work. He's going to think, what a my bosses and stew stress and stew. and stew and then in amongst that he's thinking what's my girlfriend thinking i didn't buy her flowers for her birthday and now she's stressed and she's pissed and now i'm pissed and you know i've got to do this thing on the weekend all the while i'm drinking down coffee and all the rest of it so we're in what is largely like a sympathetic dominance where we're constantly switched on and so the problem is is that that cortisol is constantly firing away the adrenaline is constantly firing away and you start getting what uh what we call like things like adrenal fatigue, which is kind of the medical community doesn't necessarily believe in that, but it seems to be gaining more traction, more evidence where basically you've, your adrenal glands are so tired of producing adrenaline that they just stop. Uh, and that's where you get significant fatigue because now even when you need to mobilize yourself and you need to run away and you need to sort of galvanize all your resources, you can't, like you're done. Uh, and then this has been linked to like depression and anxiety, um, particularly because you then have this continual chronic suppression of your immune system. And it turns out that the immune system can interact with the brain in all manner of different ways. And that's what kind of, when the immune system is depressed, that's basically what stops you from wanting to explore and engage with the world, if you like. Uh, and that's kind of going off into the field of uh, psychoneuroimmunology and there's a lot more research coming out about that. So the point is that when you see somebody on a day-to-day -day basis and they're like just in a rut and they're depressed and it's just there's been too much exposure. And then, of course, the second you send them away on holiday to Greece or the Mediterranean and they're just relaxing again and eating, suddenly everything kind of returns to normal and they're happy. And it's people then see that as like, oh, well, I just need my holiday every uh, sort of few months or whatever else. Or, oh, you know, I feel good now just because I come back. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's you returning to 
how a human being should be. Like you should be experiencing that every day, you know, and you should only be stressed out at the appropriate times when you need to be stressed out. Um, so it's, and this is what we call sort of lifestyle management. And these are the sorts of stresses that we have to take into account as PTs, like I was saying. Mm. Yeah, that's a big thing at the moment. I keep talking about this because I've been reading a lot about it, but trying to mitigate the amount of stress that you take with you after you finish work and really try and decrease that to a significant level where like you're going home and chilling yeah. and not feeling stressed like turning off your phone and maybe not watching like not doing work not taking your laptop or your phone into the room with you like really yeah. small tiny little things it's tough because like that's why well, that's why human yeah. beings are what they are it's because that constant worry has allowed us to then think okay shit i don't want to keep being chased by tigers and so i'm to gonna propagate. build a house and i don't want to keep worrying about food in winter and so i'm gonna have gmo crops and all the rest of it so that's what's enabled us to take over the world and be the species that we are so it's kind of a, a victim of your own success type horrible vicious cycle thing where the very things that enable us to survive and enable us to be so successful are the very things that will kind of slowly kill us in the end as well probably self-doing um, yeah exactly that exactly um but so yeah so that's your nervous system uh in its simplest explanation sympathetic and parasympathetic and our goal as a coach with athletes is to try and get them as much as we can to some sort of parasympathetic dominance again. So, like, I just want to stress you out at the appropriate times. And now I'm going to put you in a, a dark room. I'm going to give you sort of complete sensory deprivation so you can recover appropriately. I'm going to chuck you in a nice bath so I can quickly get your muscles to recover again. Uh, and this is where... So these are some tactics yeah, so that like, people can use. Like, how do you sort of do that and it's tough because their people have got to live and they still form relationships so it's kind of a damage limitation rather than a okay we're gonna kind of do this optimally because otherwise you just end up in a cotton ball like you know not doing anything just sitting in a room and then that would probably stress you out <laughs> so lack of stimulation yeah exactly that so you do what you can as a coach but it pays to know this sort of information because you can then start making more informed choices and when you know what uh, stress is and how you can use it, you can then get quite savvy in how you direct it towards particular adaptations that you want. And this is then off into the second and third parts of the series where, okay, what, are the, what can we do with exercise to cause specific adaptations to your nervous system and then to your what we call peripheral um, kind of adaptations like your, in your muscles and your tendons and so on and so forth. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, so well, so... Uh, so the second part then of the lecture is the central adaptations. So how does the nervous system respond to the stress of exercise? And so, uh, it, again, it's, it's important to know it because people will always come into the gym and let's say they're, they're a complete beginner, like they've never done anything before. And it's always a common complaint where people will start lifting weights, say, and uh, they're two weeks in and they're like, why is nothing happening yet? Like, why has there been no changes happening to the body? It's like, well, first and foremost, there's got to be some sort of, uh, well, it doesn't have to be, but there is a layered approach to how your body will adapt to certain stresses. So in the context of exercise, first off, we're teaching you new stuff, right? Like we're teaching you new movements, um, or particularly in your case, like in a rehab scenario, not only are we teaching you new movements, but we're just trying to get you back up to just being a regular human being again. Um, and so the brain has to work out how to perform those movements. And so what we start getting is this kind of uh, 
sympathetic response from the body in response to that. But the, the brain's now trying to work out using all of this adrenaline and everything else, which muscles to fire and at which times. And it takes a bit of time. And so that's where we tend to see that people will get strong initially, but there won't necessarily be uh, changes in muscle mass, say, because the nervous system can't quite fire the muscles in the right way to such an extent to give the muscle enough stress to actually put on muscle or to change, right? And so then we start playing around, okay, well, how can we enhance that? Like, how can we... Uh, what's the word how can we sort of manipulate that and use that sort of knowledge and okay so we're teaching people different movements now i can get you to learn a movement a lot quicker say or become more proficient at it over time by playing around with how i coach you and these are some of the examples that i get into uh, in the lecture so if i encourage you i like encourage you or motivate you I, i can get you to produce a little bit more force if i'm trying to teach you a new skill I can give you enough information to make it safe, but then if I withhold some information, so now you have to actively start thinking about it, then although you may not uh, increase your skill level immediately in the short term, over the long term, you're going to get a, A, you're going to be better at performing the movement instinctively or instinctually, uh, but then we're also going to get all these changes in the brain that's going to kind of... uh, improve what we call neurogenesis so your ability to form new neurons repair all new uh, neurons just give an example of that in a in a gym floor real world so let's uh so for instance let's i try and teach you how to do a squat rather than give you this list of um instructions like a recipe so i'm going to say like you walk into any sort of typical gym you'll hear pts doing it all the time so like, right i want you to have your feet hit width apart and I want you to keep your heels on the floor and I want your knees to go over your toes and I want you to keep your back straight and I want you to sit back and I want you to keep your chest up and I want you to look ahead. Like people are just like, they're what? Like it's overload, you know? Uh, again, that's almost a stressor in itself, particularly if you've got somebody who's already um, intimidated by the gym environment and they're feeling a little bit silly and exposed anyway. You're going to start making them look foolish. But also they're going to then become dependent on you for those external cues, particularly if you're then there when they're doing the squats and you keep saying, yep, okay, great, good, okay, yep, knees wider, uh, back straight, so on and so forth. Whereas if I just got a chair and I asked you, okay, just sit down on the chair. Okay, now stand back up. Okay, now do that 10 times. And then maybe I look at you and I see, okay, your back's kind of bending. And so I give you like a little bit more information saying, okay, I want you to keep your back straight. They're going to have to figure out how to do that. A, they've already had to figure out how to kind of sit back, but now they're going to have to do something or think about their body in such a way as to get their back straight. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? But it's the process of thought and trying to figure it out where you start getting some of these uh, extra adaptations from the brain. And then they're going to, what's the word? They're then going to produce that movement on instinct. So despite the fact that they're they're stressed out, they're intimidated by the environment, maybe they're thinking about other things, or they've got 200 kilos on their back now in six months' time, they're not dependent on the coach to tell them. They can just do it. So when they're thinking about, shit, I just need to get this 200 kilos up, they can just produce the movement without even having to think about it, right? What we call instinct. Um, And then I go into, okay, we can then play around with the load, the types of load that we use, so lightweights and heavyweights, and we can get this kind of increased nervous system input into the muscle. If we then experiment with things like uh, speed of movement, so what we would call like plyometrics or just kind of explosive movements, 
we can then start manipulating the rate at which uh, the nervous system fires the muscle. So normally, like with people, like particularly with beginners, they might be they might suck initially at producing 100% of force. Okay, so <laughs> we're you, laughing. I like the word that you use. They might suck. <laughs> like, well, they will don't suck. be don't be coy about it whatsoever. No, they suck. They don't know, they don't know <laughs> what contracting means. They don't know what it means to produce a lot of force because they've never done it before. Mm. Uh, this is something I found in my master's dissertation where we were trying to um, we we wanted to use beginners so we're we're testing beetroot juice like will drinking beetroot juice improve the force capacity force producing capacity of the muscle but we needed beginners to do it and the way in which we found beginners versus trained people is we would electrocute them in their femoral nerve okay so we would kind of take them their brain out the equation right we're gonna cause 100% contraction and then we would ask them to do it voluntarily. And the way we found who the beginners were versus the trained people was that there would be like a 5% deficit in the beginners. They would only be able to contract 95% of their, their total amount of force, right? Um, because they don't know how to do it, you know? And there's a lot of different things that will cause a, a muscle to contract effectively. And it comes down to A, is the brain wired in such a way that it's actually able to produce force in what we call the antagonist, uh, sorry, the agonist, so the muscle that we want to uh, use as the prime mover, so like your quadriceps in a leg extension. But in beginners, they will also contract a lot in their hamstring, so the antagonist, and there's this kind of opposing muscle action then that reduces force in the quadricep because your brain doesn't know what to do. Like it doesn't know which muscles to fire and at which times, and so yeah. it just fires everything. Yeah, I see it a lot when I'm trying to re-educate people's glutes. Um, simple clamshell exercises lying on your side, just lifting your knee. And I can see hamstring is just ping, just fired yeah. rock solid. So we've got to practice that nervous system's pathway first before we can, and that's like you're saying, yeah, that's teaching sure. the brain to activate that muscle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but they also won't necessarily recruit all of their motor units. So what we call a motor unit is basically the motor neuron in the spine plus kind of the axon that then attaches onto the muscle, okay? So basically the train track that connects your brain to the muscle, or well, I should say, the spine to the muscle in this. That's what we call a motor unit. Um, complete beginners, like people who haven't done anything, like let's say that you were uh, been bedridden for months on end and then try to contract, you probably won't be able to contract all of your motor units, but you will relatively quickly having performed exercise. So there's, there's one adaptation. Mm. But then, and I think people have worked this out mathematically, if you have, like if you think of like 100% contractions, 100% force, 25% of that is down to your motor units. So all motor units are innovated, all motor units are contracting, that accounts for 25% of the force you can produce. The remaining 75% is then purely how much input is coming from the brain. And this is what we call rate coding. Um, and we manipulate that and we increase that by lifting heavier loads, getting stronger, doing more forceful contractions. Um, but we can then, it's, it's difficult to describe without drawing it, but you imagine like a typical wave. Okay, so when we're measuring muscle contraction, you'll see a wave-based thing, okay? It's what we call uh, EMG, electromyography. If you then get somebody to do lots of explosive movements over a course of a training block. So loads of jumping, loads of sprinting, loads of really forceful explosive contractions. You get what's called a doublet discharge. So if you imagine on the top of a wave, you then get this extra little wave attached onto it. 
So you're getting like double the dose mm. um, for a given wave of contraction, if you like, for a given signal, we should say. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's just like extra little pulse. So the wave is measuring how much force. It's like yeah. one peak is one bit of force, then it drops, then you get another peak, yeah, yeah. which is a, uh, like a second gear. Yeah, like a little double wave. And so then that's when you're then getting like really powerful people, and that's when you're really sort of able to contract fully. So when you get like th like through a few weeks of training, and like normally you start to see changes around sort of four to five weeks, six weeks. It's then because, okay, my nervous system is now kind of suitably adapted. It's kind of knows what it's doing to a certain extent. And now there's a sufficient enough input going into the muscle to allow it to contract fully where I then start getting like the peripheral adaptations. And that's where people then start to notice um, kind of muscles getting bigger or whatever else. Of course, it's not just that. It's also the fact they've probably been changing their diet and it just takes a while for the body to adapt to that. But um, then that's where we start getting into like some of the peripheral adaptations, which is sort of the third part of the lecture where, okay, now how can we use exercise to uh, cause changes just within the muscle cell itself? And so we go through some of the kind of causes of what we call hypertrophy. So the process of, well, I guess, hypertrophy is just when a cell gets bigger or kind of proliferates. So kind of think things increasing in size if you like uh, and we kind of get into the different types so sort of uh, what we call sarcoplasmic hypertrophy which are changes that happen outside of the muscle cell itself so and this is kind of the uh, well and then myofibrillar hypertrophy which is uh, changes or hypertrophy of the muscle cell and the classic example of the, the two is when people think of like a bodybuilder being kind of big and puffy versus a power lifter who might be smaller than the bodybuilder but it's stronger right which it's, it's not again this is uh comes back to my sort of rant about categorizing things one can't really happen without the other you know if you have sarcoplasmic hypertrophy you will then get changes to the muscle cell itself and then vice versa if you're stressing a muscle in such a way as to cause myofibrillar hypertrophy you then also get the second type sarcoplasmic right um because that's just how the body works so there's different sort of uh causes for hypertrophy you can think of like a cell uh, swelling so let's say if you were to have uh, uh, so like with occlusion training for instance where you basically cut off blood supply to a muscle you're kind of causing this what we call reactive hyperemia where you release the tension again a muscle floods back in sorry blood floods blood floods back into the muscle and it then causes uh, the muscle cells having been sort of starved will then absorb that blood, absorb all the fluid. Uh, if you time it right with things like amino acids and stuff, it's now getting all of this kind of protein coming in and the muscle cell swells. And it's that disruption, that stressor, that specific stressor on the muscle cell that will then cause it to split and then form other muscle cells or get larger. I should say that the splitting and forming others has only really been seen in things like mice and stuff, and that's what we call hyperplasia. There's n I don't think there's anything to suggest that it happens in humans, but we certainly get an increase in the size. Um, and then we think of the typical things like uh, just causing these micro tears within a muscle, particularly during the eccentric part of a contraction. So if you think if you flex your arm, it's a concentric action of the bicep. And then when we lengthen under tension, an eccentric contraction. During that process of lengthening, we're getting all these little tears uh, within the muscle cell itself. So we call the sarcomere, the muscle fiber. It literally tears apart or it like pops off in some instances. And then that stress, uh, or sorry, that, the chemical release from that reaction of the muscle tearing will then send a signal to all these little satellite cells, we call them, that basically kind of sit on the, 
Okay, it's difficult to see. Google image satellite cell. Mm-hmm. You see exactly where they are. Uh, basically, just on the side of the sarcolemma, so on the surface of the muscle. And then those satellite cells will then rally to the site of injury and then basically form new muscle tissue. So they'll differentiate into a myocyte, so a muscle cell. Okay? And there's also different things like that. Cell swelling, uh, metabolic stress, so just the stress of things like lactic acid, so on and so forth, will cause damage to muscle fiber, cause the satellite cell release. Uh, the cell swelling, mechanical tension, so load, so just the sheer tension and force that goes through a muscle. But they're all of similar reactions. And that's why there isn't really too much difference between the two types of hypertrophy because one will always end up causing the other. The stress needed to cause myofibrillar hypertrophy will then cause an increase in blood flow that will cause sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And then just an increase in fluid outside of the muscle cell will then also stress the muscle cell. If that makes sense. And so then you get the myofibrillar hypertrophy. So it's silly almost to have the two separate, but scientists like to split stuff up. So what do you say? So, go on. I was going to say, and make things more complicated. More complicated exactly. <laughs> but then there are things, as I say, we can do then to start aiding adaptation in that regard. We get into those, like I've already mentioned, the occlusion training, so cutting off blood flow, uh, ingesting more carbohydrates as well, because like one, was it one gram of carbohydrates then yields something like three, is it three grams of, of water? I might have that wrong, but something like that. So just by introducing excessive carbohydrate, you then cause uh, more water, more water retention. Uh, Creatine monohydrate supplementation does the same thing. Um, And then obviously using things like caffeine, uh, things like supplements like vitamin D, that will then end up producing sort of testosterone. We can then start getting all of these sort of peripheral adaptations. We can enhance the, uh, the central adaptations, use of caffeine, use of stimulants. Uh, even things like as simple as clenching your jaw or what we tell people to do when we ask them to stay tight, you know, like when you're essentially trying to contract as many muscles as you possibly can during a movement, it's almost like takes the handbrake off your nervous system. It's a phenomenon called uh, co-activation, no, concurrent activation potentiation. So if you, if contracting one muscle elicits a certain response from the, the brain, Contracting loads of muscles at the same time creates an even bigger response. You can try it this way. Look, Caroline, make a fist. Okay, you can feel pressure in your hand, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay, squeeze your fist tighter. You can feel it in your elbow, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah? Now squeeze it even more, like you're going to burst, and then your shoulder and my tummy. fires yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can do it really easy with push-ups. If you try doing push-ups uh, completely relaxed, and then even just clenching your jaw will actually have a big effect, and you should then... I can't remember what the, the studies have shown, but it's like you get like a five rep increase, say, you know, because there's just more coming from your nervous system. So just little tricks and things like that that you can sort of change. Uh, one sort of controversial pit I put in the lecture is you can, to a certain extent, even imagine a muscle contracting and that will cause you to be stronger. So the study looked at uh, strength of the adductor pollis muscle, which is basically the muscle in your thumb. Mm. It kind of brings it towards the pinky, if you like. And they got these guys, some who would do isometric contractions of the adductor pollis, so just holding it and contracting it. A control group who did nothing, and then a con- another group that literally just imagined the muscle working. And they, they found that there was like a 30% increase in force. Uh, in the, the group that did an isometric contraction, there was like a 3% increase in force from the control group, which is just day-to-day fluctuation. 
but then there was a 27%, I think, of an increase in force in the group that just imagined the muscle working. So, so this is like visualization. And yeah, for sure. And yeah. you'll hear us in the gym all the time saying, squeeze that muscle, imagine the muscle contracting, like, because it's a potent stimulus, you know? Mm. There's lots of trainers out there, I don't think you really grasp the importance of that they think it's just like buzzwords to say you yeah know, for sure keep your abs tight keep your keep your keep your squeeze your glutes but if you, if you can fine-tune that direction and that cueing you can really make a difference so you've got a client who's doing a few reps on a with a dumbbell in their hand and they look like they're starting to fatigue just at the right moment if you can cue them in to squeeze their grip or to tense their jaw or to tight their tighten their abs they're going to push that extra rep to completion that little, maybe one or two more reps and then the knock-on effect of their muscle doing more work, they have caused more stress, they get a better adaptation. And you do that every single session at the end of every single set, really tune into it. By the end of the few months, you're going to get a huge increase that people would have just quit. Yeah, I remember even in hospital using things like that, like visualization, like imagine yourself walking, imagine yourself standing up, imagine this and being able to put it into your mind then obviously helps you to be able to eventually see and do those actions. Joe Dispenza talks about that in his in a couple of his books yeah. about pianists. Yeah. Learning how to play the piano, complete novices, go off the three groups, a control group, and then a group who play a song, they get taught a song, then they actually have to physically practice it over however much what the time period is I can't remember and then a third group has to go and just visualize playing and again obviously the control group doesn't improve at all the group who legitimately physically practice improves whatever if you take that as 100% then the visualization group weren't far behind I can't remember the stats yeah. well even in his book Evolve Your Brain his very very first one he when he had a spinal injury he was visualizing his own body like healing itself and putting everything back together and and in great detail though obviously he knew his anatomy well um and managed to heal his his back obviously the body does that anyway but at a much faster rate without the need for surgery yeah but the the visualization definitely helps and again that's something that wim hof does a lot where he imagines his immune system sort of working and he imagines his uh kind of cells firing in such a way as to kind of increase heat within his body that allows him to go and climb Kilimanjaro in his boxes. Um, <laughs> As you so do. the brain's a powerful thing. And like I say, when you start using some of these tools, you can enhance all these adaptations. Like, So the lecture's just there to sort of like, here are the adaptive responses. Like here's how you can sort of stress the system in a very direct way to elicit changes in the nervous system and then to elicit changes in the resistant, uh, peripheral uh, kind of parts of your body, the muscles themselves. But then also here's how we can aid it and kind of enhance it and, Again, like, yeah, a lot of uh, times it's taught in coaching courses, but, it, like, not really. And as you say, like, it ends up becoming, like, buzzwords yeah. and things like that. And it's like, look, this is all rooted in research. There's a reason why you say all these things. And not only that, it's also the, the clients hear the words. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yep. particularly when you say visualization, they're like, oh, yep. like, oh. whatever. Squeeze. <laughs> Visualize. Yeah, they're, they're doing an exercise. They get told, squeeze, squeeze. They're like, okay. And then nothing changes yeah because so as a coach you need to understand that i believe and then you need to have to te- tell the client look when i say this this is what the outcome we're trying to achieve is so just try and tune into it yeah completely um so just to wrap up here let's uh maybe you can give everybody just a quick overview about uh three points <laughs> about what they're going to learn obviously we've discussed that in great detail yeah well first of what stress actually is 
is probably the main bit. And if that's the only thing you come away with, then that's probably the most important thing. The fact that it can come from anywhere and does come from anywhere and it's something you need to be aware of because you need to manage it if you want to improve and adapt and get all the, the nice things from exercise. Um, but then also understanding, okay, you'll then learn how you can direct that stress, as I say, to elicit changes in the nervous system, to improve your brain function, uh, hopefully to improve your coaching ability as well. Although there's only a couple of slides, but if you get into some of the research that I put up on it, um, that will help you a lot in terms of skill acquisition. And then lastly, uh, how you can elicit changes in your muscles themselves. So like how can you improve um, kind of lean body mass, how you can improve muscle size and strength. And here are some of the things that you can do to aid the adaptations that you're uh, you're trying to get amazing cool. yeah well um it's a really good talk to be honest there's a lot in there um so i hope you guys enjoy it um where can people get a hold of you if they want to uh get in touch or follow your stuff uh, instagram is matt c underscore ptc and then i think i'm matt cultural ptc on facebook posts come Sometimes frequently, sometimes not. Whenever I'm in waves. Whenever I'm, yeah. He's in the creative zone. All right, well, thanks for coming in. Um, we'll talk to you again soon because I know you're lining up a matches in psychology soon. Yeah, so that I can then talk about some of the psychological stuff without being a fraud and a charlatan. <laughs> yeah. To give me a bit more grounding in it just because it's interesting as well. I'm a geek. Awesome. Perfect. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. We'll uh, see you guys soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye.